electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the first person in the U.S. gets vaccinated against COVID-19. A momentous day for sure. The question now, what does it mean for how you should invest your money going forward? We debate and discuss that today as we always do with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, Steve Weiss, Kerry Firestone is the CEO of Arias Asset Management, and Kevin O'Leary is the chairman of O'Shares ETFs. Let's go to the wall. Before we begin our conversation, Dow hit a new intraday high earlier, has fallen back somewhat substantially since then. We're green across the board. Tech's the big winner today with the NASDAQ up better than 1%. Kevin's good to see you again. It's been a while. I think, you know, the, the question today is how do you play this vaccine optimism versus a market that has looked tired lately? You have to think about return to normalcy within 18 months, because I think it's going to take at least till August to vaccinate half the population, uh, which means we'll still be in some sort of a situation where we're looking at health issues and isolation and certain businesses won't benefit. But there, it's clear now since March we have some mega trends in place. Let me just go through the list that would keep you very constructive on equities. Number one, I just spent this morning looking at a portfolio of fixed income credits. I have never seen more overpriced corporate credits in my life. In many cases, yielding less than 2% with five to seven per year duration. Why would I put capital work there, which gets me back? Why don't I just buy the equities of those same companies that are at least paying a distribution, in some cases, 1.8 to 2%. So clearly, equities remain buoyant there. And then you've got these mega trends towards the consumer. You know, we had record retail numbers, spectacular. Why? Because we keep trickling down a trillion dollars to them every six months, and we're about to do it again, two more times probably. That really keeps them in a good place. I know there's a lot of negativity around unemployment, but the overall trend is your friend in money supply, a huge amount. Then you've got the vaccine, which is also very constructive. We're going to have some hiccups, I get it. But the trends that really have me intrigued, I now know with certainty that I can use technology to cut my business travel 20 to 50% for the next three years. That's huge in the S&P. I can now do meetings with buyers that I don't even have to go to their headquarters anymore, and they like it better because they're more productive. The only negative I see right now in terms of allocation to the 11 sectors of the S&P is I can't believe how negative and deconstructive institutional money is toward hydrocarbons. And there hasn't even been any policy change. You just saw the CalPERS CEO last week talking down any exposure into energy, which, is, which shocks me. I mean, at least hydrocarbon energy. So there's a sector I'm leaving. I'm putting my bets now on the consumer, on healthcare, and technology, technology, technology. It is the underdriving power that's going to make the S&P have higher margins, more cash flow, more, profit, more profitability, and more productivity all through next year and two years past that. All right. Kerry, there are plenty of reasons, as Kevin just laid out, to be optimistic about the market. Maybe, you know, from the end of this year and, and into next year, no doubt about that. 
But what do you do with the fact that the market has looked like it may need a rest? That's what MKM Partners is talking about today. Tactically, they say the market may require some additional time to reset. They talk about a possible pullback to 35.50, a level they believe will hold if the bulls are in fact still in control of this market. And there is no reason to believe, these are my words, there are no reason to believe, I don't see any, that the bulls are not still in control. And if you get a pullback to that level and the bulls fail to show up, they say, well, you can get a little more downside risk. But what about this idea? Does the market need to have a break, have an extended break, some sort of of reset, and then you get a Santa Claus rally? Or, Or what do you think? Well, you've asked a lot in there, and uh, let's put it um, in perspective. Um, Anything over 3,500 is a pretty strong market. If you think about where we were last February, it's well above those highs. The market's selling for 22 times next year's earnings, and interest rates are about, you know, zero. You know, 1%.9 had a little move up, came back down. So the lower interest rates are, and they're very low, the better it is for the stock market. When you talk about a pause, if you think about the FANG stocks over the past few months, those stocks have paused. Uh, Netflix has been slipping for six months. Apple came down. Um, Look at Facebook. Many of them are down, you know, between 10 and 15 percent. So you might say that we've had a rotation into the cyclicals, into the value stocks, reopening stocks. They've moved up very sharply. Perhaps they need to pause. It's considerable that I I think the FANG stocks might be able to start to move higher. Some of the growth stocks, we've had an enormous, inordinately crazy uh, rally in in all of the IPOs. If you look at stocks that are more than 20 times sales, I, I put together a little chart of next year's sales. It's the highest it's ever been. You can pair that to 20, 2019, 2020, 2019, and 2018. I, I think those stocks, and you can see it today, they're slipping. Names like DoorDash, mm-hmm. Airbnb, um, CrowdStrike, etc. So I, I think those numbers have gotten way too high. Uh, I, I understand that the market's not cheap, right? 22 times, but with interest rates this low, some of the market can move higher, but it isn't necessarily the part of the market that has had this this huge spike over the past few weeks. And we need to be careful because it's dangerous when you say valuation doesn't matter. It will matter. Okay, so Weiss, what, what about that? What, what about some areas of the market that that do appear to show froth. Kerry mentioned, you know, DoorDash and Airbnb, which had their IPOs last week. Today, DoorDash got downgraded at DA Davidson, and Airbnb got double downgraded to a sell at Gordon Haskett. Now, I mean, each one has, has their individual reasons, but you wouldn't have seen those downgrades more than likely had you not seen the incredible bursts off of the first trades. There are clearly excesses in the market, and you point out, too, that, that to me, uh, just don't make any logic. Uh, you know, it's driven by momentum buyers. It's going to take them years to grow into their valuation. Just take another look. Take a look at Snowflake. I mean, we talk about how that stock's run. The CEO earns $90 million a month in his compensation package. Now, a lot of that's options and dependent upon you know, his performance, but it's ludicrous. I mean, talk about poor governance and diluting shareholders. So those excesses two years ago, three years ago, they wouldn't have been around. You always have an IPO that's sort of hyperbolic. So, but it's not just there. Uh, 
Morgan Stanley analyst came out with a recommendation today on Sensata. And the reason why he likes it is because it's only a couple of multiple terms above its historical valuation versus its peer group. We're talking about supposed value stocks, cyclical stocks that have 10 multiple terms above their historical uh, multiples. So look, so I think you got to be very careful where you go. Well, it's not saying avoid this industry, avoid that well, industry. You've got to be very bottoms up and stock specific. Let me ask you this. Are, are you playing the market True. right now for a run into the end of the year and beyond? Or are you playing it for a pause, reset, and then a, and then a restart of the rally? You know, the latter. I, I just don't, uh, I, I think you see two things happening over the next month. I don't think there'll be a Santa Claus rally. Uh, there's just too much noise out there. Uh, we see it today. If you would have said six months ago, we're going to get the first vaccine, and we've got visibility to hundreds of million more doses going forward, you'd say, hey, the market's going to fly today. It started that way, but now it's given up some. So I do think, to your comments earlier, it is a tired market, and that I don't know if we have to trade down because the bull case is still intact, but I think you've got to take a little bit of a pause here and figure out what you're going to do. And don't forget, we've got the Georgia election coming up beginning of January, and that could really dictate the direction, at least on a very short-term basis. So do you want to get involved with that? And then finally, on Friday, a major reconstitution of all the indices. So, you know, that's going to take the market in a direction, at least temporarily, that we don't know. I think it's going to be a better to sell because you've got to accommodate the Tesla, which will be the seventh largest uh, component in the S&P. So you've got to resize the rest of the positions. Yeah, I, I so do wonder. So lots of noise coming ahead. I do wonder, um, Joe, about the runoffs in January, January 5th. You know, potential shenanigans on the Hill, too, in Congress on January 6th when it comes to tallying the electoral votes, too. I, I mean, the market hasn't paid attention, doesn't really care about either at this point. And it may once you get closer. And who knows, it, it may not. But, you know, Steve sounds a little more cautious in the near term. Are you? Because I still feel like there are a lot of people looking for a Santa Claus rally. I guess I'm, I'm cautious on the word mobility. And first of all, today is a day for this entire country to broadly smile in a year that smiles have been hard to come by. Uh, the vaccine and the various vaccine announcements led to what was a significant demand for stocks that correlate with mobility. And to Kevin's opening comments, energy up 33 percent in the quarter. So if I'm cautious anywhere, it's surrounding that mobility. I still want to own a very dispersed basket of equities because, Scott, you know what? I still can't get a 1% U.S. 10-year Treasury. We haven't printed above 1% since March 20th. I can't get the VIX to close below 20. We haven't done that since February 19th. So I'm not ready to give up my Amazon and my Apple. I'm going to hold mm -hmm. some sensitive stocks like a Honeywell, I'm going to buy Best Buy, which I did last week. I'm going to have my Starbucks, and I'm going to have my tractor supply. But I think to be diversified right now amongst large, small, mid, growth, and value is really the right strategy because I think there's going to be a lot of episodes of up and down for this mobility uh, trade that presented itself very strongly in the last 30 days. Jim, you've been pretty positive. And I'm staying that way. Um, listen, you asked Joe just a second ago, is he cautious? I'm not cautious. Can I say it any more clearly? I'm not cautious. And I'm not a very risky guy to begin with. 
But I look at what's going on as a consolidation that sets up the leg higher. Now, there's evidence for this, okay? I'm not just flying out on a limb here. You take a look, start with the price of oil. Now, I know Kevin was talking about energy stocks, but take a look at the price of oil. It's in the high 40s, and it's staying there. Even though OPEC is starting to open the spigots a little bit, and even though oil inventories are very high, that's a very positive sign. So is the fact that equity, mutual fund, and ETF flows have reversed from outflows to inflows over the last month. That's a very important sign. What's also a very important sign, and I think this is the crux of the matter, earnings estimates for the S&P 500 for next year are now set to be a record high at $169 a share. If we were saying that three months ago, six months ago, you would have said, get out of here, you're crazy. No, it seems perfectly reasonable. And greater than 10% growth into 2022 seems reasonable as well, given how much monetary stimulus there is and fiscal stimulus to come. True. So I'm not some crazy fly-by-night guy here. I'm a cautious guy generally, but I see opportunity, opportunity, opportunity but that right now. But that doesn't mean that, you know, some great opportunities have already been presented to you. I mean, Kevin O'Leary, a move that you made just speaks volumes to me about, you know, the running that we've seen in, in various parts of the market. You sold American Express, right? The reason you did is because you say you made two years worth of returns in just six weeks. And I wonder how many other people are out there sitting on similar returns who are wondering about selling, booking some profit, and whether that's any risk to where the market is now, Kevin. But, Judge, there was another stimulus for that sell decision. Normally, I would have kept that position into the new year. But here's what I now know. Um, Q1, Q2, 2021 budgets across 50 companies, all private, looking at their business travel in the next six months. There is none. So then I did something else. I started calling all of the speaking uh, agencies that book keynote speakers for large gatherings, symposiums, you know, gatherings for financial services, all of the insurance companies. They have none. There are no in-person meetings going on in Vegas or Hollywood, Florida for anything for the next year. I cannot be constructive for business travel. So I've gone even farther. I shorted the aircraft companies and the airlines because they are not going to be coming back the way people thought. And, you know, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just looking at what's actually happening in this digitization of America towards a more productive world. It's at the expense of certain costs, like motels that service business clients, like airlines that fly them domestically and internationally. They're not going to be traveling. Nothing to do with the pandemic. I can tell you with certainty, because I participated in one last week, where a meeting that would have happened at the largest retailer's headquarters happened on Zoom. It happened on Zoom. It saved $35,000 of all the people that would have flown sure, there and but what stayed about, in that motel what about and pent up that terrible demand? food. What about pent-up consumer demand? We, we know, I mean, you painted a picture at the top of the show how You're 2021 right. is a reason to be optimistic of all these great things that, that are going to happen. Well, people getting back on airplanes and some sort of larger volume is going to happen. The margin on a vacation traveler is a fraction of what the business traveler used to pay the airlines. I My whole it. point is, if you're thinking business travel is coming back, I say no, it isn't. I say 20% of it's gone for a very long time, and that, on the margin, 
is going to really start to show up at the back end of Q1, Q2. And people are going to say, hey, what's wrong with the airlines? I'll tell you what's wrong with the airlines. They're going to have to consolidate. There's too many of them trying to fly business travels that have no reason to fly anymore. These are the kind of microscopic decisions okay. you have to make as an investor. So, let's so do this. what's the number one credit card for business travelers? Amex. Yeah. I'm out. So Airlines, I'm short. It's, it's a personal call. So let's do this. You're shorting the Jets ETF. Steve Weiss, you own the Jets ETF. So do you have a rebuttal to, to Kevin's thesis, as, you, as I also note that you own Delta Airlines, too? I, I agree with Kevin's thesis a thousand percent. They're small speculative positions, and I think that shorting this market is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, I'm short a couple of names for the reconstitution, but that's it, my short position. Um, I don't think they go down the airlines or, or jets, which is the airline ETF, goes down much. And I think it's an option of going higher because the market wants to be optimistic. So if you're going to short anything in the market, that's where people are going, in addition to the one-offs that we all know, the hyperbolic names. So I can't dispute that thesis. I said the exact same thing on Amex last week. Um, and the airlines, you don't want to be a big equity holder there because they're basically insolvent. And they've diluted you to kingdom come, and they're going to keep doing it because they need capital. I don't think there'll be consolidation because we've learned those lessons of consolidation from when they did it before. And who was disadvantaged? The consumer. So you're not going to bring them together no matter how destitute they well, are. Why do you, you still own the airlines? The I don't understand. Why do you still own the airlines? It sounds like you're painting a case that they're going to be financially troubled for an awfully long time. Because I think that the market is going to look through that and that the, the path of least, uh, of, of least resistance is still going to be higher uh, and that the government's going to come in and fund them. The cruise ships, if I were to short, I'd short the cruise ships. I wouldn't be shorting the airlines. I mean, the reason I bring it up, too, is Morgan Stanley's out with an outlook today that says they reiterate their attractive view on the airlines into 2021. Now, they go high-quality names over some of the other high-beta names, but they're still positive uh, on that space. The other interesting note today comes by way of a Disney downgrade as you sort of talk about, you know, OK, where are we on the reopen? Well, Disney got downgraded, carry to market perform today. That's from outperform, which is interesting, most especially for our purposes, because you just bought Netflix and they say that Netflix has taken <laughs> the top top of the mantle back from Disney. Uh, well, we've been looking at both for a while, and we credit the Disney shareholders and people who have bought recently for identifying that streaming services were going to be a fantastic positive for Disney, plus they had the reopening uh, part of the business. That's why that stock is rallied. But it's now about 37 times 2022's earnings, and that's pretty close to what Netflix multiple is right now. And Netflix has had this pause. It's come down. Uh, we look at the number of subscribers. It has an enormous number, a, a huge number compared to Disney, although Disney has predicted a, a big number. But Netflix are paying customers and they have this advantage to cash flow and the amount that they can spend across the world in all the different countries, languages and marketplaces. And that's an advantage to the subscribers. So we think that that runway gives Netflix a big advantage at this price right now. And we've been waiting for it. Uh, we've decided that it was time to start to buy. I wish we owned Disney over the last three months. But 
it's it's an incredible company, Netflix. Everyone realizes that. And the multiple has come down relative to some of the others who are trading at big, um, you know, big prices relative to earnings over the next few years. This is a company we think will deliver not to take anything away from Disney. But look at that chart. You. And it shows you that people realize what's going on there. That's very good. Been a monster run of late uh, for certain. And their investor day was incredibly positive and well taken by the likes of Jim Labenthal, who owns Disney and is smiling there. I know he wants to get in on this part of the conversation, maybe to talk about the downgrade itself. Yeah, well, so let's talk about it. I think there's only one negative that you could hit uh, Disney with, and it's the fact that they massively raised their subscriber projections, but they're still staying constant with fiscal 24 being the first year of profitability for Disney+. Plus. There's a key reason for that, though. There's a key reason. They're investing like crazy in content. That four-hour investor day, I listened to the whole thing, and about three hours of it was new content. I swear, this was like being at the bottom of the Hoover Dam when they opened the sluice gates. It was just a nonstop torrent. You want Kardashians? You got Kardashians. You, you want uh, Marvel? You got Marvel. You want Buzz Lightyear? It was incredible. The point being is that forget fiscal 24. Think about fiscal 25 and 26. They are going to make oodles of money. I know it seems like it's far away. But that's why the stock went up, whatever it was, 15% on Friday. And it's not done. People are looking at the investment for the future this company is making. If you're downgrading it here, you're missing the bigger picture. Yeah. Kevin O'Leary, you own Disney too, right? Yeah, but you've got to understand what's going on in the, the shareholder base. Disney used to be a cornerstone holding for indexers like me in dividend mandates, in quality mandates, in conservative mandates. That is not the case today. There is some portion of this float being turned over into more speculative hands that were more lovers of Netflix, as you just detailed. And that is not the dividend community for obvious reasons. So some portion of this stock has to make the turn. If not, it's probably happened already. But it's not the go-to name for a dividend strategy anymore because they have to spend a ton of money on this new content and perhaps reduce margins and even profitability for a significant period of time to catch up with Netflix and the other streamers are doing exactly the same thing. So, but I still own it because in the long run over the next 24 months, if you want to call that the long run, the content there is El Supremo. There is no question. When it comes to content, you know, everybody knows kids that watch the same movie 40 times. They only do that with Disney content. There's very few other players that have that kind of longevity in the back book. Those old cartoons from the 50s, still playing it's you know you have to you have to argue there's value there that's why i'm a shareholder yeah it's interesting i mentioned what morgan stanley um ha had to say um a, a moment ago you know as, as we were talking about a specific group of stocks Th they look at the banks too and say that that's where so you've gotten a value rotation let's say into the disney's of the world which which we just talked about and you've gotten a value rotation into the cyclicals like the airlines which we just talked about and you've gotten it into the industrials and places like that they say get ready for a great valuation rotation into the banks which i know kevin o'leary hates mm -hmm. joe you own morgan stanley is it finally time to get more positive about the banks <laughs> I own Morgan Stanley. I also own Goldman Sachs. And if you're saying now's the time to get into Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, I think you're a little bit late on that. For the rest of the money center banks, whether it be Bank of America, J.P. Morgan or Citi, uh, they've been performing well recently, but they need the benefit. They need the benefit of a steepening of the yield curve. And they also need the understanding of the incoming 
uh, President Biden-elect administration, what is going to be the temperament towards the financial sector? Will there be regulation that will be implemented further than what we've seen over the last four years or not? I need to have an understanding of that before I'm able to expand my ownership beyond Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, which I would. Well, how sad is that, though, that there's no you have no optimism towards fresh money going into the banks? I get the run over the last month, okay, is is impressive for some of the stocks, not all, but some. But when you're still talking about stocks like Citigroup, that is 28.5% off its 52-week high, or J.P. Morgan, that's 15%, or Bank of America, that's 19 or Wells, that's 46.5%. That's such a telling statement, Joe, about where the appetite for risk is within the bank sector itself. I, I would agree with that, Scott. I also think there's an absence of clarity, as I just suggested. Um, I, I, I don't know what that policy is going to look like going forward. I don't know if banks are, are going to need to be uh, putting more capital on their balance sheets or not. Systemically important financial institutions, will the threshold go higher or not? I don't have the answers to that right now. So those are important questions that need to be answered. That equates to an absence of clarity. And in addition to what uh, you're observing, I think that's another reason why it's a headwind for a lot of these money center banks. All right, let me finish one last point before we, we take a quick break. Weiss, I want to get to some of the trades that you made. You bought more Qualcomm, you bought more Skyworks, you bought more Corvo. You want to tell me why? Yeah, I did it on Friday afternoon. Uh, Qualcomm sold off on what on news that was expected, that Apple's going to be making their own chipset, their own modem. We knew this when they bought Intel. Intel was never able to get into the business. It's going to take Apple years to do it. And by the way, they've got five more years left on their contract with Qualcomm. But they hate Qualcomm for obvious reasons, so they don't want to do any more business. And from that, Qualcomm was talking about the previous day how their RF chip business is they're making inroads with Apple. Well, I'm going to call BS on that. Apple's not looking to do more business with them, as I just said. They're looking to do less business with them. So you have Skyworks and Corvo that were hit by that. So it was a perfect store for those three companies. Uh, after reconnecting uh, with the companies, and, uh, well, one in particular, I just said, you know what, this sell-off is a gift. I'm going to go out and I'm going to re-up my position. They were core positions, so I added a trading position to it which when the stocks recover, I'll go back to the normal core position. Okay. All right. Good stuff. Thanks for that. Up next, investor Andrew Wilkinson. He joins us to talk about the company he's taking public today. It even sparked the interest of Bill Ackman. Halftime's back. Just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. 
Georgia's 16 electors are meeting right now to vote for Joe Biden. The first time in 28 years a Democrat has won that state. That and a margin of about 12,000 votes helped make the state a prime target for unsuccessful attempts by President Trump and his allies to throw out the vote. The six electors in another contested state, Nevada, have also made it official there. And Wisconsin's Supreme Court has just rejected a Trump suit to overturn that state's popular vote. On its last decision day for 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court did not rule today on President Trump's plan to exclude undocumented migrants from the census numbers that are used to calculate each state's congressional representation. And that may be because the Census Bureau says it doesn't yet know how many people would be excluded. And the NCAA doesn't yet know for sure where its women's basketball tournament will be held. But today it says all the games will be in one area, and that is likely to be in San Antonio. You are up to date, Scott. That's the news update. Back to you. Okay. Sue, thank you. Sue Herrera joining us there. Well, from buying a lunch with Bill Ackman at a charity auction to taking his holding company, WeCommerce, public today up in Toronto, all before the age of 35. That's part of our next guest's impressive resume. Andrew Wilkinson is the co-founder of Tiny Capital, which invests in startup tech firms, many of which are tied to the Shopify, Shopify platform. He joins us now. Welcome. Congratulations on your big day, the first company you've taken public. Thanks, Scott. It feels pretty amazing. I bet it does. So I mentioned you count Bill Ackman as an investor. You also have the family office of, of Howard Marks, which is run by his son. How did all that come about? Well, it was really, it was uh, pretty serendipitous. Uh, I've been running my business for about 15 years. Uh, I've been doing it quietly from an island in Canada, and uh, we've never had any outside investors. And about two years ago, uh, I saw a lunch uh, up for auction with Bill, and I had actually invested in his public holding company, and I figured, hey, I'll go for lunch. It'll be interesting no matter what happens, and if I like him, maybe I'll buy more stock, and if I think he's a jerk, maybe I'll sell out, and uh, I really liked him. We hit it off, and we spent six hours together, and uh, at the end of the lunch, he said, look, I don't know if you know, but I have a family office, and I occasionally invest in tech. I would love to invest in you uh, if there's ever an opportunity. And about six months later, uh, we saw an opportunity we were very bullish on. And so we partnered with Bill uh, and Andrew and Howard Marks and Ryan Graves from Uber. And we uh, started WeCommerce, which is the business we took public today. It's interesting. What was the best piece of advice you'd say that Bill gave you over that lunch that you put into practice? Oh, man. Uh, well, I mean, Bill... Bill really just thinks long-term. I think that's the big thing. I think it's easy uh, when you're young and you, uh, you just want to do things quickly. Uh, you know, we had, we had said to him, uh, you know, should we sell this business? Should we hold this thing? And he just said, you just need to think in decades. You need to be much more long-term. Uh, we really tried to drive that home. And now my business partner and I, we like to joke, we make three to five good decisions a year. Uh, and that's perfectly adequate to do exceptionally well. Yeah, maybe you're trying to put part of that into practice. I mean, we commerce, you're trying to develop into a, a Berkshire-like structure, right? That's right. So with WeCommerce, uh, it's actually a business. It was originally founded based on a business I started about 10 years ago. I met the CEO and now president of Shopify at a conference. And at the time, I was actually running uh, a web design firm. 
and he said, I love, I love the work that you guys do. Uh, I would love for you guys to be one of our first partners. And so we became one of Shopify's first partners. Uh, they were very small. There were about 30 or 40 employees at the time. They hadn't even raised venture capital yet. And uh, we took a bet on the platform. We really liked them. And uh, that ended up turning into a very significant business. Uh, and it's been a tremendous ride. You have about 30 companies. I'm wondering, what is it about the Shopify platform that, that attracted you? Because sort of everything is, is seemingly or most are, are in that ecosystem. As you put it to me prior to this appearance, it's sort of like investing in the, the barnacles on the whale itself. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone realizes that Amazon is huge. Uh, but what they don't realize is that Shopify is massive alongside Amazon. It's number two to Amazon in terms of uh, GMV through the platform. Uh, and it's really the only alternative uh, to Amazon. If, if an independent retailer wants to sell online, Shopify has become the default choice. And they could sell on Amazon, but Amazon often will compete with them. So Amazon creates a basic version of the product they make, sells the generic and then they lose margin uh, and, and sales over time, and they don't own the customer data. So with Shopify, they own the end-to-end -end experience, which is super valuable. Uh, and so we believe that they are the best positioned platform in that ecosystem. And so what we've done, uh, very similar to uh, you know, the Apple iPhone App Store or Salesforce App Exchange, uh, you know, a really amazing uh, group of businesses has sprouted up in the partner ecosystem. Uh, which adds, you know, apps, uh, themes, services, et cetera, to Shopify merchants. And we've now gone out and acquired a variety of some really phenomenal businesses in that space. And the reason we uh, raised money today was to go and do more of that. We want to make more uh, great acquisitions in this space. Interesting. I've got Kevin O'Leary uh, with me on the show today, which is fortuitous that we do. He's an investor in Shopify uh, Kevin, I'd love for you to, to get involved uh, in, the, in this conversation. Yeah, I, I think what's intriguing, what I'm hearing, which I, I'm very constructive around, is this theme that any tool or platform or technology that allows a company to acquire its customer, maintain it, and service them directly is a huge investment theme. And, and I live with that every day. Every one of the companies I invest in has about 40% of its sales with Amazon, and the rest is either with retailers or a small fraction direct to their own customers. So if you're telling me that you're investing in companies that let me empower my companies to sell direct, I would rather replace all of my retail sales with the direct relationship with the customer. I need the tools. Shopify is the number one tool. They have a million businesses on it. I know that. But they also have every single one of mine for one singular reason. I want my customer data. So I think your investment thesis is a very, very good one. And now the task is go empower me with more tools that I can use, anything I can do. And by the way, I'm not saying I don't love Amazon. I love Amazon. They're 40% of my business, but I love a direct relationship even more. So go make that happen. It sounds like a great idea. Yeah, thanks. I mean, we, one of the most staggering uh, numbers is uh, in 2019, Shopify partners did $7 billion of revenue. So what that means is that 87% of Shopify merchants rely on apps to extend the functionality of their store. So for example, let's say, Kevin, one of, your invest, one of the companies you've invested in uh, wants to do wholesale pricing or they want to do discount codes or some kind of email marketing plugin, Instagram integration. They might use one of our apps to achieve that. 
You know, Andrew, you, you look at Shopify as we're, we're looking at it here. The, the chart is attractive. You know, it, it's up 168% or whatever that number was year to date. We're just coming off a of DoorDash and an Airbnb IPOs that were wildly successful. As you're on the hunt for your next portfolio company or two, you're running up against these valuations that you'd like to buy into. How do you deal with that? Well, I mean, we really sit on our hands and wait. Uh, when we raised money from Bill and Howard and Ryan and ourselves, uh, you know, we sat for the first year and we did absolutely nothing. We looked at a lot of deals, but at the end of the day, uh, we just couldn't find a business that had the qualities we want at the price that we felt was fair. And so we're very comfortable uh, waiting for opportunities if we have to. Uh, currently, we've actually found that there's a lot of really interesting Shopify partner businesses uh, available at reasonable prices. Uh, just because there's so many of them and the market is so fragmented. So we have quite a large pipeline of opportunities. I don't know if we'll actually close any of them. Uh, we say no a lot. Um, but generally, it's just waiting, sitting and waiting like any other investor. I know one of the areas, and, and lastly, before I let you go, that you're thinking a lot about and, and maybe thinking about investing into, or perhaps you already have, is remote working and how much we've been focusing on that for obvious reasons because of the pandemic, but how that changes into the future as well. I mean, we've been working remotely for 15 years. Uh, I live on an island in Canada. So if I was just hiring here, I think it would be very challenging. Uh, and so what we've done over the last 15 years is run remote using all sorts of collaboration tools. And so when the pandemic hit, it was a, we flipped a switch and we were uh, running as usual. And it's been really cool for everybody to realize that, hey, it doesn't make sense for me to spend 24 hours traveling, getting sick fatigued, et cetera, just to have a, a meeting that Zoom is often enough. And, you know, Kevin, I heard you talking about how business travel uh, is going to suffer significantly. I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, we've done our entire roadshow via Zoom, and I really have to ask whether, uh, you know, it's actually a better experience or not. I think it's much more convenient for everybody. Yeah, Kevin, I mean, that that sort of fits into your into your thesis. But lastly, then, I mean, just a natural follow-up. Yeah, I- would be cool. Go ahead, Kevin. Well, I, I was going to say that the, the you're, you're right because it was forced on us. I would have never done this and canceled meetings with huge companies that I'm partnering with or, you know, potential investors. But that's exactly what I've done. And, and I, I have to agree with you. I don't want to go back to the way it was because it takes me hours to fly to Europe and, and come back. And this I, I haven't had a cold since last March. And I really like it. I'm thinking this is the new way we're going to live. And I'm, I th- I'm not the only person thinking that way. So won't be getting in an elevator with 70 people going to 78th floor anywhere. I'll just Zoom you. That's it. Yeah. It makes you think about the investments that have, have done so well, um, Andrew, and, and how they're going to perform on the other side of the pandemic for whatever the new normal may look like, the, the Zooms of the world and, and everything else. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with us today. We'll continue to follow your uh, career. I know you have a lot of good things ahead, and we'll certainly keep in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. All right, Andrew Wilkinson there joining us. Up next, the big ETFs to watch this week. And as we go to break, a check on the S&P sectors. There you go. S&P still up eight and a quarter, led by discretionary. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, 
Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. There's going to be historic trading volume this week around the big rebalancings on Friday. Tesla's going into the S&P 500 and the red-hot Nasdaq 100 is rebalancing and it's adding new members. Our guest today, the man who participates in making those decisions about who goes into and who goes out of the Nasdaq 100. Sean Wasserman is the Nasdaq Global Head of Index and Advisor Solutions. Sean, you announced six new additions to the Nasdaq 100 for the close this Friday and six deletions as well. Can you very briefly explain the process of deciding what goes in and what goes out of the Nasdaq 100? Sure. Thank you, Bob. It's a very straightforward rules-based approach that we take a look you know, once a year, effective on the third Friday in December, uh, a re-ranking of you know, what are the top 100 non-financial companies you know, listed on NASDAQ. Um, so we have six really great, exciting uh, new companies coming into the index, um, companies like Peloton, Atlassian, Okta, that really benefited from you know, the current uh, remote work from home environment that we found ourselves in uh, rising in the ranks and positioning themselves to enter the index. I think the key here is that this is not necessarily a tech index. I know Apple, Microsoft, Amazon are the top holdings, but you've got Pepsi in there. You've got Comcast in there, our parent company. You've got Starbucks uh, as well. It's non-financial, but it's not just tech, right? Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. For technology, the index you know, comprises around 55% of technology, but it is quite diversified across sectors such as healthcare, uh, consumer services, consumer goods, you know, with all the companies that you mentioned, including other ones like Moderna, um, yeah. that really helped to round out the index and the overall exposure that it provides. You know, uh, Sean, almost $150 billion is now indexed to the NASDAQ 100 ETF. That's the triple Q. Those rebalancings are now major trading events. How do you feel that index committees like yours are now major power brokers because so much passive money is tied to those indexes? 
We definitely see that trend of you know, huge um, investor money going into passive investing. You know, within the queues, we've seen you know over fifteen billion dollars of investor flows coming into the queues. Um, and the way we construct our indexes are very much uh, rules based as opposed to uh, committee based. So when we construct our indexes, uh, we take that particularly in mind, making sure that the indexes can be effectively uh, replicated and are investable you know, for them. You know, for example, one of the new indexes that we really just had come out is the NASDAQ Next Generation 100 Index, the next uh, 100 non-financial companies listed on NASDAQ, which was recently, recently launched as an ETF by Invesco, uh, ticker QQQJ. Yeah. Sean, thanks very much for joining us. And folks, join us at 1 p.m. Eastern time for ETF Edge. We're going to explore the future of the hottest investment and ETF trend of the year. That's environmental, social and governance ESG for 2021. Our guest, John Hale, head of ESG research for Morningstar. Linda Elling Lee, the global head of ESG research for MSCI. Kim Arthur from Maine Management. What's going to happen with ESG in 2021? Tune in ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime, back in 30 seconds. All right, guys, I want to talk about a call today on McDonald's. So what's interesting to me, the stock's up 8% year to date. It got upgraded today to UBS. They say they're cooking up a juicy 2021. Those are their words. I don't think anybody today owns it. And I want to know why. I also want to know why the stock hasn't done better year to date. Carrie, do you have an opinion on that? Well, you know, McDonald's is still only selling for t- uh, 24 times next year's earnings. You compare that to many of its competitors. I mean, start with Chipotle, which is whatever it is, a thousand times or, you know, very, very high multiple. And Starbucks is, um, is a pretty big multiple. And I, I think it's attractive if you're in that space. The problem, of course, is, you know, McDonald's is considered a, you know, it's an eat-in and take-out place, but eat-in has been a problem, and you have to have reopen, and it's not the kind of place that seems to have gotten traction on its business through the pandemic. It just, you know, hasn't been one of those COVID, quote, helped uh, restaurant and consumer service companies yet because their website isn't at the same quality. They don't have the, the, uh, the type of ordering and digital platform that some of their competitors do, they can get that. I mean, look at Walmart in the consumer business and Target. You can achieve that. No, but you uh, have to invest for years. that's what they're going to do. You have to invest for years and years and years and years. Well, maybe they have been. Yeah. It's not something they've made a big deal of. Yeah. Joe, I I see you want to make a point. Just do it quick for me, if you could, please. Yeah, absolutely. McDonald's has failed to define itself to a younger generation, which is exactly what Shake Shack has done. And Shake Shack has the ability to grow market share, and they've captured that audience of a younger generation. You think of McDonald's, you think about an older generation like myself, um, the younger generation is going to gravitate towards toward, uh, Shake Shack. Yeah, well, all right. We have more trades ahead on the half. Before we go to break, take a look at some of the stocks hitting new highs today. Take two interactive, Etsy and HCA Healthcare. There you go. We're back after this. It's time for the futures outlook. The 10-year inching closer to 1%. Let's bring in Scott Nations of Nations Indexes. All right, Scott, I I was going to ask you if we're going to make another run at 1%. What do you think? I think we will. Right now, it's risk on because of immunizations. And that's great for yields, but horrible for bond prices. And, Scott, the way to play this is to be short the bond futures, ticker symbol ZN. Uh, in the March contract, I'd be a seller 138 
108, a little bit above where we're at right now. Target 137.08, that'd be another lower low from the from the November 11th level. This is priced in uh, in points in 30 seconds. Each point is worth $1,000. And since my stop is 138.24, as you can see there, we'd be risking, uh, they got that backwards, we'd be risking uh, $500 to make $1,000. All right, good stuff. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Scott Nations, quick break, then final trades are next. Welcome back. Got a money dispute? Well, Kevin O'Leary wants to help you determine the best way forward. Go to CNBC.com slash money dispute to tell him your story. Well, Kevin, that looks interesting. Give me, uh, give me a final trade, if you would. Facebook. I think it's big digital spend, Q1, Q2. Geolocked advertising is the key to success. They get 80 cents on the dollar from me. All right. Good seeing you again. It's been a while. Kevin O'Leary. Uh, Kerry, final trade? S&P Global, with the rush of financings for companies raising debt and also the shakeup in the S&P index, they are services in strong demand. All right. Steve Weiss. Skyworks, 15 to 20 percent revenue growth next year, 25 to 30 percent earnings growth, expanding market, and it's selling at a discount to the S&P. What right. more could you ask? All right. Farmer Jim, what do you got? Uh, Steve is right about Qualcomm. This is just like when Amazon started selling prescription drugs a month ago and CVS went down, gained it back a month later. So will Qualcomm. This okay. is your opportunity. All, All right. right. Lastly, the man they named an ETF for. <laughs> Netflix, Scott, I agree with Carrie. I think it's about to break out, right. continuing to raise prices and consumers paying All for right. it. Good stuff. Thanks, everybody. The exchange is now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower? The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.